All right, we're going to get started. So this panel is the book launch for <coughs> People's Republic of Walmart by Michal Rozworski and Lee Phillips. And we're just going to start with, um, thanks. We're just going to start by having the authors uh, give prepared <laughs> talks about, about the book. And then I'm just going to ask them a few questions. Uh, my name is Wendy Liu. I've been asked to moderate this. Um, and then we're going to open it up to the audience for the broader discussion. So to start off, we have uh, Michal. Um, so I'll give a sort of, try to give an overview of the core arguments of the book, and then uh, Lee's going to place it in sort of bigger uh, debates, both on the left and the, and the right recently that have been happening sort of um, around, around the ideas in this book. Um, so the book is a short, it's a short book, um, and it's a private, it's really not as much a defense of a thesis as um, just the defense of an idea. Like the book is really about the idea of economic planning, so of rationally deciding um, about production and distribution rather than letting market relations dictate both. Um, and more concretely, it's sort of a defense of two ideas, sort of twin, sort of flip sides of this idea of planning that one, we plan, we already plan our economy, um, our economic life all the time, but that we could do so very differently, democratically. Um, freeing ourselves and allowing so many suppressed capacities, um, especially that for decision-making that we all share to flourish. Um, I don't think I'll spoil very much if I go to the last page of the book. Um, and the last line is, uh, planning works just not yet for us. And I think that sort of really encapsulates these twin sides of, um, of planning that we're trying to express through the book. Um, and in a way, in talking about planning, we're really just sort of excavating an idea that used to be central to debates um, about how we run our economy um, and how we organize social life. So um, we're trying to show that planning, um, and we're not necessarily talking about like planning the whole you know, central planning of the entire economy um, right away. Just the idea of, um, of economic pl planning is not so controversial, really. Um, and it's, I, th I think we both see it as sort of our contribution to you know, um, this project that I think a lot of people on the left are engaged in now to sort of chipping away at some of the ideological kind of walls and blinders that four or five decades of neoliberalism have, um, have built up around us and that affect us all and that have constrained all of our, um, all of our imaginations. Um, and really this, this, is an old, this is an old debate and used to be an, a raging debate between the left um, and the right, especially in the first half of the 20th century and there was a big raging debate about whether um, planning was feasible. Um, called, you know, the, either called the socialist calculation debate or the economic calculation problem. Um, on the right, it featured one of the best arguments ever mounted against economic democracy um, and socialism, that it was simply impossible. Um, that's, that was the argument of people like Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Hayek, um, today better known as sort of the great grandfathers of neoliberalism. Um, they argued that the amount of information and complexity that was needed to plan an economy or sort of large-scale production and distribution, even in sort of sectors of the economy, is too vast, and at best it would require um, armies of bureaucrats, even if it wasn't impossible. And they also argued uh, not just about sort of impossibility at a certain point in time, um, but that the price signal sort of compressed, so compressed sort of all this information that you needed at one point in time, but it also helped people discover new information. Um, and that planning simply wouldn't be able to unearth all this new information that then you know, tells us that we need lavender soap or whatever, that that's what people, uh, that that's what people like. Um, I mean, Hayek mystically, sort of in a 
semi kind of mystical way called, uh, called the price signal action at a distance. Um, he literally thought that that's what it was. And it's kind of funny today, you know, it's one thing to call prices that in the age of the telegraph, it's a little different in the age of Snapchat um, and whatever, when we, you know, each have a cell phone and there's tons of action at a distance going on, you know, um, all over the place. And, and, you know, there's globe spanning telecommunications infrastructure. So what we try to do in the book is sort of recount, on the one hand, recount this debate, which is, you know, very dry and full of minutiae and try to just make it, make it a live debate again and, and take some of that dryness out of it, but uh, also bring it up to date by looking at a bunch of case studies. I think that's a really interesting thing and, and to sort of bring, bring planning to life, to look at these case studies um, of planning both in today's economy and throughout history. So we peer inside uh, the likes of Walmart, uh, which is on the, on, in the title on the cover, um, whose annual revenues would make it the 35th uh, largest economy in the world uh, on the scale of a Switzerland or a Sweden. It's the largest private employer in the world, um, over a million workers just behind the Pentagon uh, and the People's Republic. Uh, people's, uh, the People's Army um, in China. People's Liberation Army. Well, PLA, yeah, exactly. Liberation Army in China. Uh, we look inside Amazon. Um, and while both Walmart and Amazon, um, like all capitalist enterprises, ultimately sell goods on the market, um, internally they're, they're planned. So we find you know, these vast distribution networks for mi millions of goods um, that increasingly use non-price information uh, to do everything from planning their logistics networks to uh, informing production by suppliers uh, to even predicting what consumers want. So big networks that go into sort of each part of the production process um, and each part is sort of an economic cycle. Um, and just to make it very, very clear, and this is a quote from, I think, unlike the last one, which is from the last page, I think this is a quote from the first or, or second page, uh, we're also clear that these are execrable, sinister, low-down, dirty villains. So we don't want um, any preconceptions that this is a book sort of celebrating Walmart uh, or Amazon. It's, you know, it, it's like we say in the book, it's like a microbiologist who discovers, you know, like a virus that's very interesting and, um, and, and productive and, and, and wants to un sort of understand it and see. Um, and see what's there. Um, economists, when they've looked at planning within firms, they don't do it too much. They rather, you know, sort of talk about markets and prices and not really look at these black boxes um, that are actually central to the economy and, and where so much economic activity takes place. But when they, they have looked at it and they have said, ah, oh, that's kind of funny, there's no markets there. And they're like, ah, oh, better not talk about that. Um, but they have called them islands of conscious power. That's what one of Keynes's. Um, early collaborators called it, and then Ronald Coase, who's one of the main economists, who's sort of uh, one of the main theorists of the, of the firm from the early 20th century, uh, also used this phrase of islands of conscious power, but I think we argue that it always should be um, used in tandem with Noam Chomsky's phrase that they are islands of tyranny at the same time, and that's a, it's a nice sort of play on, on that phrase, and I think, I think we really have to keep both in mind. So once we go inside the four walls, of any firm, from sort of whether it's a large corporation like Walmart or you know the bodega down the um, down the street, planning is still the default way of making decisions. But it's a very undemocratic planning. Um, the workplaces where so many of us spend so many of our waking hours, um, they're not sites of great you know freedom and flourishing, especially uh, for the capacity to make decisions. Um, they're places where these shared human capacities are underutilized. 
or quashed. And it's, you know, it's a place where what the boss says goes and where the profits then go to the owners. So in the same way that Amazon uses information technology to create you know, ever more efficient supply chains, it uses the same information technology uh, to create increasingly dystopian where, uh, warehouses and other workplaces. Um, <coughs> beyond the sort of private economy, we also look at historical um, examples of, of large-scale planning across the world. So from the paternalism yet promise of big public programs like the National Health Service in the UK, there's a chapter on that, which show that nationalization is good, but it's not enough. Um, to the authoritarian failure, failure that was the Soviet Union, uh, to experiments in cybernetic planning uh, in Allende's Chile, cut short by the right-wing coup of uh, Augusto Prunache, uh, to today's centralization of investment decisions by the financial system. So these are all case studies uh, that go beyond the four walls of, of one firm, either into the public sector or into experiments uh, with planning across, across the economy. Uh, and if the Soviet Union, if the USSR is sort of the popular reference point for any discussion of planning, in a way, our aim is to tar capitalism with the same brush of authoritarian planning. So both the Soviet Union and Walmart are examples of authoritarian planning at huge scales. Um, and in doing so, again, coming back to these central ideas, it's just demonstrating that planning is both inevitable, um, especially with today's development of sort of social cooperation, where so many of it, you know, to produce how many people it takes to produce one of these, it's thousands upon thousands and across, you know, across, across the globe. Um, so we have huge development of social cooperation, of supply chains, of information technology, um, but we also have um, extremely undemocratic and alienating economic life at the same, at the same time. Uh, so the question isn't whether we plan because we do it all the time, it's who controls it, how is it done, and what are its outcomes. Um, and the aim of the book is to make questions like that relatable sort of to our uh, everyday experience of a still very much undemocratic economy. And to make economic democracy, the flip side of that, a renewed topic of debate, again, after so many years where we really haven't talked about it um, as much. Um, that's pretty much what I want to say. I want to say maybe three, three things, uh, add three things that the book is not. So I said what, the, what I think the book is. Uh, three things that the book is not, just to, just to um, you know, just so if someone sees, the, sees this cover, um, it's not a defense of Walmart uh, or Amazon or any of the sort of private fiefdoms, these islands of tyranny. As we said, they plan, but not for us. Um, the book's also, um, and so if, if someone was expecting this, it's, you know, 250 pages of pretty large type, um, not a blueprint for central planning the entire economy. Um, it's just an argument. Um, about the idea of planning and you know, exploration of its past, um, of its past and present. Um, and I think most importantly, it's not a call for sort of more technocratic management, but really a call for its opposite, a call for um, democracy extended to every corner of our lives, um, indeed to the very center where it's largely absent, and that's uh, the spheres of production and distribution of human labor. Um, and I think as, as we write in the book, it's sort of a poor theory of, of human la life that thinks um, that only the profit motive can spur or in today's sort of lexicon, um, incentivize action towards collective goals. Um, and it's the people who have the outsized decision-making power over our economy, the owners and the managers who know this, um, who know this too. It's the, the free market taboo against planning uh, conveniently obscures 
the fact that everyday authoritarianism organizes and plans so much of our economic life, um, so much of our collective activity uh, already. So we wanted to breathe new debates, uh, new life into these debates at this juncture uh, when the left is you know, on the rise again a little bit, regaining popular support, um, and when the social reality that we see all around us is overturning um, some old truisms. It's our little bit of, uh, of pushing back against the Tina, there is no alternative narrative um, about thinking about the future, and at the same time, a look into sort of these black boxes that are at the heart of today's economy. That's the book. Um, right, so the problem with markets, um, on the left we often focus on questions of, of, it, of their production of inequality or lack of workers' control, thus domination and alienation. But we should be paying attention as well to irrational production. Uh, the markets limit production to that which is profitable. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the set of all goods that are uh, both um, um, useful and profitable, there's, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of them, obviously, your, your, your underwear is, uh, the happy, there's a happy coincidence that your underwear is uh, useful to you and is also profitable to uh, companies like the Gap. The, the Gap. But there's also two other categories of, of potential um, products in our society. Um, if something is harmful, if we know that something is harmful, even if, it is, uh, so even if we know that it's harmful, uh, so long as it's profitable, it will continue to be produced. Fossil fuels are perhaps the, the, the classic example of that. Um, and on the other side, there's a category of goods uh, or services that are incredibly useful. But if they're not profitable, or even insufficiently profitable, uh, uh, there, will be an, there will be no incentive for them to be produced. So, and in the book, we, 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 want, we talk quite a bit about um, new classes of antibiotic, um, uh, new, new, new families of antibiotics in, in, the, in the face of uh, growing antimicrobial resistance. Um, those are insufficiently profitable, and so the um, pharmaceutical companies largely got out of the business of developing any sort of doing any uh, research and development, uh, let alone engaging in clinical trials or commercialization production. Um, yeah, about three decades ago. Um, so fossil fuels, you know, um, uh, the uh, BP Statistical Review of Energy in 1998, sorry, sorry, BP Statistical Review of Energy from 2018, uh, there's a very interesting um, uh, chart in there that uh, showed that uh, as, of, um, um, as, of last, as, of, as of last year, the, purport, the global purport, the proportion of non-fossil energy within the global energy mix is no different from what it was in 1998, despite all the increase in, um, in renewable, variable renewables. Effectively, we are standing still there. Uh, meanwhile, in, in, uh, with respect to the, the, the question of antibiotic resistance, um, um, the challenge there is, is effectively that um, if you take an antibiotic uh, to uh, resolve an infection, um, that will be, hopefully, if it, if it works, it'll be, you're in, you will stop using those drugs two or three weeks later, maybe with tuberculosis, maybe five, six, seven months later, but then you're done. Uh, you're not going to be taking that drug anymore. So from a, uh, from a corporate perspective, it makes much more sense, even if there is some limited profitability there, it makes much more sense if it costs $1 billion for every new molecular entity uh, to invest that money uh, for some sort of drug for a chronic disease 
where somebody has to take that drug every day for the rest of their life. This is a so it's not me, that, but this is not me that's making this assessment. This is the conclusion of people from CDC, from you know, the uh, European Union's former uh, chief scientific advisor. Everybody who studies this, uh, this, this subject says uh, the fundamental problem, there's many different things that are accelerating antibiotic resistance, but the fundamental problem is that we have not developed any new classes of antibiotic um, in about 30 years. What's interesting uh, was that just a few days ago, uh, there was a really great extensive investigative feature in the New York Times uh, by science journalists Matt Richter and Andrew Jacobs on the spread over the last five years around the world of the fungus uh, Candida auris, which is uh, now resistant to all, some or all antifungal uh, medications, uh, forcing even a renowned British medical center to shut down its intensive care unit. Half of all those who were infected die within 90 days. Now the paper on the scale of the problem that the reporters depend on for the backbone of their story um, unsurprisingly lays the blame on the sparse discovery pipeline on a chronic lack of investment in novel antifungal agents because most pharmaceutical companies are not investing in antifungals preferring to focus on other apparently more lucrative areas. It's not my language, that's the, that's the paper. So again, so not just with antibiotics, but we see exactly the same um, uh, problem uh, of uh, markets being unable to produce um, um, uh, goods that we know are useful or beneficial to us, but because it's simply uh, insufficiently profitable, they, uh, they, they aren't done. This is, not, this is no small thing. Um, so much of modern medicine, from surgeries to catheters and injections to even many diagnostic procedures, they depend on a background of antimicrobial uh, protection. And experts on the threat of antimicrobial resistance talk of a return to a Victorian era of medicine within about 20 years. Um, my day job uh, uh, as, a, as a science writer, uh, for much of the last three years, um, I've worked for a, uh, a climate research institute. And as much as I'm very uh, aware of the, the, the real existential threat of climate change, if anything, I would say that uh, antimicrobial resistance is an even greater or rather more short-term threat. And I don't understand. Sometimes I wonder why there isn't a, a massive progressive movement fighting on that on the scale of the uh, climate justice movement. Um, last month, the UK's uh, superbug czar, Jim O'Neill, who happens to be a former uh, chief economist for Goldman Sachs, um, suggested that it may be necessary to nationalize Big Pharma to deal with this problem. Comparing the current situation with antimicrobial resistance to the 2008 financial crisis uh, crash that forced the nationalization of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Now, of course, by that same logic, uh, we should probably also nationalize the energy companies. Um, so, now, under market socialism, a series of worker-owned cooperatives between which distribution is carried out still through market mechanisms. This means that there would still be an incentive to produce harmful product, products, such as fossil fuels, and there would still not be an incentive to produce new classes of antibiotic outside of some sort of regulatory intervention. So does this mean that market, social, market socialism is foreclosed as a, as a liberatory uh, possibility? Our book, in some uh, quarters, has been viewed as a defense of socialist planning and an implicit critique of market socialism. And in parts that certainly is true, our section on uh, the market socialism of Yugoslavia in the book um, is actually explicit. Uh, but the reality is more complicated. One should view our analysis more as a complement 
to rather than an alternative to uh, the market socialist conversation. And one can see this if one views socialism as a process rather than an event. Um, however, we're left with two camps on the socialist left. Uh, those who continue to argue for socialist planning in spite of the conservative case made within the calculation debate, and those who concede the conservative case made within the calculation debate, and so argue for market socialism. The socialist planners emphasize the necessity of eliminating markets due to inequality and irrational production arguments, amongst others, despite the very real difficulty of calculating. And the market socialists emphasize the very, the, uh, the very real difficulty of eliminating markets despite the ineluctable inequality and irrational production that results from markets. They're both right. So how do we square that circle? I think our book demonstrates through, uh, through, empirical, uh, through empirical example that the critique that planning at scale is impossible is false. Walmart exists. It demonstrates that the argument that planning of heavy industry may be possible, you know, some, sometimes you know, conservatives in the, in the debate say, well, okay, maybe planning is possible for heavy industry, for the minimum of variables, but consumer items, my God, there's millions of variables in the supply chains there. There's no possible way that uh, their planning can occur there. So again, I think with the, our examples of, of Walmart and, and Amazon, uh, very consumer-facing uh, um, organizations, we show that uh, the, uh, the planning for computer uh, items is impossible is also false. And yes, the crucial development that has allowed this to happen is computerization, telecommunications, information technology that, here to, uh, that allowed heretofore unimaginable moment-to-moment -moment sharing of vast quantities of information between nodes in the supply chain, and increasingly um, uh, big data and even machine learning. Um, we do not say that computation has solved all the problems of planning. But it cannot be ignored that the scale of planning that is now feasible could not, uh, could not have been possible without such technological advances. We must pay attention to how uh, transformations in the forces of production, including technology, do permit change in what relations of production are, um, are feasible. Not ignoring, of course, that it is only social struggle can, that can make the feasible actual. What it does not argue is that it is possible to entirely eliminate all prices from the global economy. It's not, that we do, it's not that we do not think it is impossible, but we simply don't ask that question. Instead of arguing uh, whether socialist planning or market socialism uh, is our desired near-term outcome, we should instead view decommodification, socialization of production and distribution, as a process that is permitted to advance in stages as technology and social struggle allows. They're not competitive. Social, uh, market socialism and socialist planning are not competitors. And to some extent, and again coming to some recent events in, uh, in even debates on the right, to some extent this conversation, uh, and it has in the last couple of years, led to the bounds of the left. Jack Ma, the founder of China's Alibaba Group, one of the largest and most valuable companies in the world, argues that previous state planners in the Soviet Union and the early People's Republic of China failed due to insufficient information. He has predicted that over the next three decades, uh, thanks to artificial intelligence and the sheer, sheer volume of data uh, to which we now have access, we will finally be able to achieve a planned economy. Chinese economists increasingly discuss what they call a market-based, plan-driven, or a plan-oriented market economy system. Austrian uh, internet governments and data science researcher Victor Meyer Schoenberger, in his recent book, Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data, argues from a very much pro-capitalist point of view 
that the price signal is diminishing in importance with respect to transactions. He argues that while price is a compression of information, it's not a lossless compression. And a restoration of those losses is being permitted by a multi-dimensional comparison even that humans uh, find very difficult to assess. So for example, buying uh, plane tickets, uh, where recommendation engines are using price as only one amongst many factors, recognizing who you are even better than you do uh, to be able to help you choose uh, the best time and uh, airline uh, to, to fly in. One can, as, as he, you know, to some extent he, can, he imagines what we can very well imagine here, uh, his vision, where price diminishes import in importance over time with the convergence of the owners and the planners without there ever being any reckoning taking place between the ruling class and the rest of us. This is no fantasy. In February, the US Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship, chaired by Republican Marco Rubio, released a report called, titled Made in China 2025. Um, crediting the Chinese Communist Party's planning for its media, for the country's meteoric economic development and technological advances. And this report, uh, Rubio's report said that the U.S. must adopt some measure of state planning in order to keep pace with China, otherwise their rival will soon overtake them in the realms of artificial intelligence, robotics and biotech, as well as other emerging technologies. Then, Intel, chip manufacturer, in early March, released a white paper calling for an, a more interventionist industrial policy to bolster US uh, artificial intelligence capabilities, again, to counter the Chinese threat, the so-called Chinese threat. Neoliberalism is facing a sort of difficult moment at the moment. Um, is it dying? I don't know. But um, with China perhaps a few years away from overtaking the United States as the largest economy in the world, we should be the left should be very worried that as the global free market order is tested, elites might begin to switch allegiance, encouraging from neoliberalism towards something along the lines of encouraging adoption of a Beijing-style authoritarian planned-oriented market economy. Once the world economy is safe, maybe a second time by Chinese spending, or perhaps once we watch the first colonists on the moon bearing a red flag up on their shoulder, the Davos class will find such defection from neoliberalism to authoritarian planning, or some form of this, very seductive. So as technology allows us to move from a discussion of how much we can, uh, from, uh, to move to a discussion of how much we can plan instead of whether we can plan, moving beyond the socialist planning versus market socialism dichotomy, True democratic control of both at the enterprise and the government level must be the non-negotiable foundation of this conversation moving forward. We on the left must be the guardians of freedom, as the differences between planning by the panoptical freedomless surveillance capitalism of Amazon and planning by the authoritarian surveillance communism of the Chinese Communist Party become harder to spot. Just to finish up here. During the Cold War, the slogan of many democratic socialists who opposed both Ceausescu and Pinochet, both the invasion of Afghanistan and Vietnam, was neither Washington nor Moscow. Today, for all the lessons we, learn, we can learn from the likes of Walmart and Amazon, Marco Rubio and the Chinese Communist Party, it might be neither Bezos nor Beijing. 
Great, thank you guys for that. So I guess I wanted to start by just saying what I really liked about the book. I like that you presented planning as something that was more complicated than simply an alternative to you know, what we have now and that there is, there is good planning and there is bad planning and that we have to think about what sort of institutions and processes we have in place to ensure that we get the good sort of planning. Um, and I also really like that you engaged with uh, kind of like mainstream economic analysis and um, the way, you know, they, they would see planning, right? So like responding to conservatives, like Hayek, whatever, who did not like the idea of planning and they had, they had, they had interesting reasons. So I guess in that vein, I wanted to ask you to um, kind of respond to what, you know, a perceived defender of the current system would say. So, for example, like one of the common critiques of the left is that it's mired in utopianism and that right. everything we propose right. is just not possible. And, you know, even defenders of capitalism might say the current system is not perfect, there are problems, and yet what you're proposing, this sort of democratic uh, plan system, is just not possible, either because the technology isn't there or because people will not be able to behave in that way. And so what evidence do we have that something like what you guys are proposing could work? I mean, I think that um, Walmart is, is one of our great examples here. Um, um, I mean, one of the inspirations for, for the book was this sort of almost throwaway line from um, Frederick Jameson, mm -hmm. the literary theorist, uh, or literary critic and Marxist uh, theorist, um, where he's, he said that, you know, the left isn't utopian enough these days. That the, the real utopians now are, 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 are the, the planners at Walmart. And he said that we should be properly utopian and imagine how we can um, uh, that this is the, the and take over Walmart. That this is the utopia emerging from the mist. Um, uh, I, I mean, to some extent, to talk about a utopia is kind of a funny thing in any case because it's already existing. It's right there. It's just not. It's planning works at that scale, uh, vast scales. Um, it just doesn't, as we were saying before, it just doesn't work for us. So if anything, we're simultaneously being very utopian, or but a sort of practical utopianism, looking at what like vast uh, planning structures already exist, and then the utopianism is, is just about us taking them over. Yeah, and, and in a way, you know, you can sort of flip that on its head in many ways. The market defenders are also utopian because their vision of a market society is, is a very utopian one, and we actually have, and, and that's sort of the flip side of the planning that already exists. We have all of these draconian rules and institutions that are built built around actually non-market relations that allow the market relationships to work, right? And it's, they are the ones who would say, well, it's, you know, this is freedom, this is whatever, the market just allows us to, uh, you know, to sort of self-actualize in this kind of abstract way as well. Um, and the flip side is exactly, is all of this, is all of this sort of everyday authoritarianism that builds, that builds those institutions and creates those, you know, incentives and all that to, um, to actually change, you know, to go back to your question, to change how people behave and to change, um, to change people themselves uh, into being able to function in an economy that does distribution in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the counterpoint to that is that people would say that Walmart only works because it exists in this larger market, and right, and you have price signals, you have um, these suppliers who kind of function outside the company, and that that is the only way to make it work. Otherwise, you need some sort of external force that. Mm -hmm. um, encourages Walmart to stay competitive, to keep innovating. And the other thing is, you know, as you guys have noted in your book, Walmart is not a utopia within, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and there's the, you know, there's a possibility that what makes Walmart or Amazon great, you know, the fact that they can deliver so many different products, can um, deliver things to people so quickly, is because they are 
uh, treating workers so poorly. Yeah. And you know, the, the question maybe remains is that, is it possible to take, is there anything in their logistic system that makes it worth trying to seize, oh, seize if the people who are currently you know, within these systems yeah. are just being treated so poorly? Um, yeah, there's a lot, I mean, lots, I mean, lots I, there. Do you want to talk sure. about firmification? Yes. Sort of Walmart? I mean, the one thing, and on, on that last point, um, yeah, that goes back to the thing that, you know, again, taking them over is a sort of easy phrase or that there's things there, but it's, I think any kind of democratization would be a, a big sort of transformation. You know, even in the context of like, you know, imagine if you turned Walmart in, uh, or Amazon into a workers' co-op or something like that, like no one would vote themselves into being an Amazon warehouse worker and you would have lots of trade-offs into like how the technology was used and where it would be applied and all of that, but that isn't to say um, that there isn't there isn't the kernel there that that is useful and, and they do you know they do um, they do plan right you can you can take away some of the mechanisms of planning but then how they're um, how they're carried out um, and the, and then also the you know both the conditions of the labor uh, that creates these you can still have um, a plan a plan system of labor existing in very very different conditions under it and it would create some different trade offs right. I guess the, the only thing I would say there is that um, the economic calculation debate was, or the, the conservative case wasn't, yeah, planning totally works at scale, but you still need prices somewhere. Uh, it was planning is impossible at scale. Um, so, that's, so they're sort of cheating there. And in fact, if anything, I mean, we had a, um, uh, it was really quite nice to see that the Cato Institute had written a critique of our book. And that was basically, you know, their argument there. You know, happy to concede that. That's, but that's a much more interesting question, right? Because now we're having a conversation about how much uh, uh, can we have, uh, like where do markets still need to exist? And I think the left is, other than this sort of like, completely utopian ideas of a completely planned economy. I think from the very beginning, we've always said, like, um, uh, it's a question of how much we can um, uh, squeeze out markets. I mean, I, mean, I, I, mean, I do, I, I, because of irrational production, I personally do, would like to have this sort of like, maybe thousands of years from now, a fully decommodified economy. But that's a much more interesting conversation to have um, about uh, the role of prices, rather than whether we, everything has to be uh, priced. Um, and I said, uh, yeah, no, that's, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Like there's, you know, and it goes back to that. Um, I mean, it's fascinating that the, some of this sort of, um, like what's his name, the, the Austrian guy, like some of these sort of theories of capitalism are thinking about it yeah. as well, that, you know, and um, that you have all these, and this goes back to like Aristotle and Marx and all this, you have all these like qualitative, you know, chairs are very different than tables, which are very different than shirts, than like things of steel. Like it's hard for us to, find ways to compare these like very qualitatively different things, but it's also hard to imagine, um, especially in an era of increasing sort of information technology and computation, that the price signal is the only way and all the rationalities that it creates is the only way to make sort of comparisons uh, between quality, quality, qualitatively different things and that we couldn't find different ways to compare uh, real resources to one another um, in ways that that actually 
acknowledge sort of their qualitative difference in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a much bigger way. So I think the last question I wanted to ask you guys sure. um, has to do with, uh, it feels like this book talks about planning in a way that's vertical, by which I mean you talk about you know trying to plan an entire sector, I guess from top to bottom. So you talk about um, antifungal medication, <coughs> and that's something where it's, that feels like a very vertical use case, right? Where you mm -hmm. want to plan the research, the production, development, distribution, all of it. Um, but I think it might be useful in some sectors to think about planning in a more horizontal way. So you talk about Walmart and Amazon a lot, and um, Amazon, you know, is not just a retail company. They have this huge uh, cloud computing network. Yeah. And Walmart, um, you know, they, they don't use Amazons. They have to go with, say, like Microsofts or some other companies because they don't, they, you know, they don't want to use their competitors. But the point is, you have all these big companies that are relying on cloud computing. Mm -hmm. And that's something where... Um, it's there's a lot of duplication in the sense that a lot of these cloud computing companies mm -hmm. they are producing really the same thing but they just because it's locked down through intellectual property law and you know they need to safeguard their their competitive secrets you have all this duplication and that feels like something where you could you could um, introduce the idea of planning where you only have one yeah. you know yeah. centralized service yeah. underneath um, and then maybe you can do the same thing with other sectors where you find something that uh, where markets are not being efficient because they're producing really the same thing, but there's a lot of duplication of effort. And because you have an intellectual property law and, and other stuff, then maybe there's a way for the government to step in and kind of plan just like that layer and um, remove that element from sort of like market competition. And then you have um, companies that are smaller building on top of that. And so then instead of you know just planning entire like vertical slice at once and you plan horizontal layers, and then there's still room for markets to sort of do what markets are supposed to do best on top of that. It's just that they have less, um, it's for one, the startup costs are lower because you can have smaller companies that don't need as much capital to be able to start something. But also, um, theoretically, they would be able to innovate faster. And you know, people who like markets, that's usually what they say markets are good at. Yeah. Um, railway gauges in the 19th century, the standardization of them, that's a, I mean, the, the cloud computing, the duplication there. Mm. Um, uh, the, that would be the 19th century uh, version of that. I mean, that's more standardization uh, than necessarily. But that certainly in terms of the horizontality there, um, I run, yes, I mean, the great irony here is uh, that um, planning is necessary for markets to work here. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it, 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 it was just completely inefficient for, um, you know, you'd reach one, one, one town and there was a different gauge, and so you'd have to spend time to change the, change the wheels, and it was just, Utterly. Now, the argument from the capitalists is that the minute you begin to standardize anything or plan anything, then you're locking down innovation. You're not moving forward. You're saying, this is how we're going to do it, and, and uh, uh, not moving forward. Well, to, uh, tough, you know, to some extent, uh, it, it, in, the, in, repeated in, innovation can actually be a lock on, uh, block on innovation in that respect. And today we see that with. Um, Decision, uh, the, 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 the lack of willingness in, the, in, in Europe to uh, define standard uh, electric vehicle charging uh, plug, uh, so which is inhibiting the building of a uh, trans-European uh, um, charging station network, a network of charging stations. So it would make sense for the European Union to, at this point, to intervene and plan and basically halt all new innovation in plugs and say, this is, just, we're, this is good enough, we're going to stick with this yeah. and move forward. Which then enables, you know, ironically enables greater yeah. innovation yeah. in yeah. the actual vehicles and all of that. I mean, yeah, I think, as Lisa has talked to, like the duplication is really one of the big irrationalities um, in, in capitalist production. I think 
there's a lot of things, you know, it's basically an argument for sort of, you know, turning things into public utility, something like cloud computing, which is a sort of modern day um, public utility, or a, a modern day utility, it's not, um, it's not public, and I think today's economy, like the information economy produces a lot of these kind of utility, um, utility-like things that are still, um, that are still very much private. I mean, I think, again, we, you know, I think the planning that we already have and that I think many people would see would go beyond just that very layer of utilities, but that's one where um, it's something that, you know, that has these, basically produces natural monopolies and then has, actually has efficiency gains even on the capitalist's own standards um, of having democratic control or, you know, collective sort of control over that and public intervention it, into it and that kind of standardization. And that's a sort of, you know, first step kind of demand, just mm -hmm. even just to take these things that, again, even under their own standards should, should have some kind of uh, greater regulation over them. They, of course, still want them, you know, to be like some, some kind of crazy regulation that ultimately absolves the state of responsibility, but, um, but that <coughs> acknowledges that these are basically things that we have to plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess what I'm taking away from this is that, you know, the market system has trade-offs, and this would have trade-offs too, and yeah. the best we can do is try to minimize the, the downsides, when, right? 